Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Tip of the Iceberg podcast, brought to you as always by InsideThePenguins.com, a proud affiliate of the Hockey News. I'm your host, Nick Berlansky, joined as always by Nick Horwat, and the Pittsburgh Penguins are back in action later tonight. They are 10-10-0. They take on the 10-10-0 Nashville Predators later this evening. We're going to have a lot to talk about today. Brian Rust is nearing his return, a massive story for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Seemingly just as massive, Tristan Jari seems like he's back on track. We'll talk about that, and the Penguins continue to work on their power play at practice. But before we get into that, Horwat, the last time we talked was a week ago. Matt Canada was still employed when we started that episode. He was fired by the time we ended that episode, but a lot has happened since then. How was your Thanksgiving weekend? That was pretty good, kind of busy. You know, I had to work uh, late into the night on Wednesday after a... Mm. One nothing shutout loss. It was one of those close games where if certain areas of this team were rolling on all cylinders, it was maybe had a different outcome. Maybe if uh, Jonathan Quake didn't turn back the clock about 11 to 12 years, um, yeah. maybe there would have been a different outcome. But that was Wednesday night, Friday night. That game needs no introduction. Good old blowing third period leads. Um. And then a huge bounce back win against the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, and I'm sure one that we'll dive a little deeper into considering some of the details that were dis- of the topics we're discussing, Jari amongst them, the power play amongst them. Um, plenty of good to come out of that game. It felt uh, like a pretty solid win. I think that third period left a lot to be desired in terms of offense. You know, they... It's, uh, you could say they shut them down. I would say Jari shut the Leafs down. He faced mm-hmm. 12 shots, stopped all 12, and got a couple of lucky bounces, whereas the Penguins only had three shots. So Jari shut them down more than the whole team did. But uh, that was a busy weekend. I mean, had a day off and honestly didn't eat that much. <laughs> Oh, see, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I need to I need to announce a public apology to my gut because the what I did to my stomach over this weekend, probably the worst four days of eating I have had since college. Probably the worst four days, like the worst compounding stretch of eating I had since Suicide 6, which was <laughs> a, a eating competition we had in college where we ate at six fast food restaurants within – six hours it was within three hours we, we got there pretty quickly but like this weekend was bad this weekend was horrible to the point where like sunday and monday my digestive system was fighting back in a in a big way like i had obviously thanksgiving which is phenomenal mm-hmm. you know turkey mashed potatoes corn gravy all that fun stuff leftovers dessert my wife made a beautiful coffee cake that i'm Ooh. still eating to this day nice. oh so good sourdough included like it, it was very good but the biggest mistake I made was Friday, I had, like, nothing until I had a burger and fries and hot sauce. You know I like hot sauce with my fries. Yep. So, already, not a good start. Saturday is where I really screwed up because I went out downtown in Pittsburgh, and I was drinking and bar hopping, but I had pizza. I had mini churros, which were delicious, especially because I paired them with a crown crown and, uh, crown and ginger ale, which Ooh. is what I was drinking at that point. You, you know if it gets to that point in the night that I've had a couple of couple pops already. But drinking that, and then, because we're downtown, I had to get Condados. And, you know, but at the end of the day, pizza, churros, Condados, match that with Thanksgiving two days before, burgers. I had pizza again the next day. I got home on Sunday night, 
and my stomach said, you know what? You've put us through hell mm-hmm. over the past couple of days. So they <clears throat> it, it got its vengeance, and it's still getting its vengeance on Tuesday. But, uh, you know, you said you didn't eat much. No, I really did Holy crap. Mine was horrible, um, and I should I should really apologize to my guts. Yeah, it just there, it, it was probably the least amount of food I ever ate on a Thanksgiving uh, Thanksgiving day slash night. Hmm. Um, and not that the cooking was bad. To uh, my girlfriend Megan's mother, great food. I just I uh, was just full for some reason that day, and also probably worried about work that I had to go do the next forty eight hours. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So then. Uh, and then uh, I had Sunday off and worked at Stagey and got to see Bush afterwards. So I'd say my know. weekend was pretty solid otherwise. Yeah, there you go. You couldn't eat because you were worried about when Brian Rust would be able to return to the Pittsburgh Penguins lineup. And fortunately for you, Horwat, you don't have to worry much longer. It appears that he is close to return for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Could return as early as this evening against the Nashville Predators. Yesterday he practiced practiced he practiced in full capacity with the team in full contact capacity I should say including some time on the top power play unit which we'll talk about later in the show he's still classified as day-to-day by Mike Sullivan right now but with 16 points in 17 games whenever he returns whether that is tonight against the Predators or if that's Thursday against the Tampa Bay Lightning it is a huge boost for the Pittsburgh Penguins yeah Mike Sullivan classified him as day-to-day but he also did uh, specify that he expected him to be a or expects him to be a game time decision come uh, tonight, come eight o'clock tonight. Good old hour time zone change. Uh, yeah, so th- that'll be that. That'll be a good little boost um, because the Penguins need uh, his scoring touch back in the lineup, wherever it may be. I think there's some real questions that could be where does he go? I think that top power play unit's going to be the easy answer for there because um, first of all, he's that's that was like the only real. Uh, work the penguins did i mean they did small drills beforehand but they did about a metric truckload of uh power play work yesterday and mm-hmm. there was some filtering in and out of uh ways to run the power play but the the lines seemed pretty consistent with uh brian russ being on the first one and that second one looked like a tryout man i don't know what to say about it but there's still some changes that could happen there. We'll get to it. But as for Brian Rust, he, he, he took enough work that it really seemed like he'd be back. Yeah, now the big question becomes, where does he play once he returns? I think there's a lot of people that would just simply say, hey, put him back on the first line because that first line was fantastic when he was healthy and that was fantastic the first 17 games of the season, which I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I get it. It was one of the best lines in hockey, which was Gensel, Crosby, and Brian Rust for the first quarter of the season. Seventh in the NHL and expected goals to this point still uh, with a minimum of 100 minutes played together. They're, they're seventh right now in that statistical category. And three of them are uh, all three of them, I should say, are in the Penguins top five in scoring this season. Crosby obviously having that phenomenal year. Jake Gensel showing the playmaking side of him, but also scoring seven goals to this point. And Brian Rust being, you know, again, a pleasant surprise at how much he is contributing on the score sheet. So I get why people would say, just put him on the first line, don't overthink it. But I don't think it's an overthinking to to say that he might be better served playing on another line. Maybe not for him, but maybe for the remainder of the team. Yeah, it's because that second line has gone pretty flat. Pretty pretty much just no-showing. Not no-showing, but you can tell there's still chemistry. You can still still tell that chemistry is there between... Malkin and Smith they're still making things happen um just all of a sudden that finishing ability has disappeared all but disappeared 
and Alex Nylander being added to it, as much as they had chemistry beforehand, um, or at least Malkin and Nylander with uh, Jason Zucker last year, as long as much as that chemistry was there before, Nylander really didn't finish much last year, and he still isn't finishing this year. So you, know, you can see that there's definitely things happening with that line, and they're still creating, but nothing is being capitalized on. Nothing is being finished upon. So that's a tough trio, man. And Brian Rustin there could work pretty well if he's able to continue finishing and help Malkin and Smith get back onto their horse. Because again, like they have, they still have it. You can tell they still have it. It's just a matter of finding the back of the net now. Yeah, and here's the thing with Brian Rust's game as well. Yes, he has that finishing ability. He has nine goals already on the season, which he's well on pace. Even with the three games missed that he's missed over the past week, he's well on pace to get close to or surpass that 30-goal mark for the first time in his career. You know, hot take by me, looking like a little less and less hot as the season goes on. But he also has seven assists. He's a playmaker. He's somebody that makes a smart pass. He makes the right pass, and he, and he performs it well. He executes well. So... He's somebody that I think would really help that second line. And like you mentioned, they're struggling a lot. In the last six games, Malkin and Riley Smith have combined for one point, And it was an empty net goal for Evgeny Malkin in the Vegas Golden Knights game. Riley Smith himself has gone goalless in 10 straight. The last time he scored was a multi-goal performance against the San Jose Sharks. So that line is uh, officially cold. I I think we can say at least that. That line is officially cold and it needs somebody other than Alex Nylander to go on that line and try to spark some spark some change and spark some difference. I don't know if it's because, you know, early in the season nobody had seen what Smith and Malkin can do and now there's a little bit of tape on that. People forget that these teams do tape study before yes. they go in and play games. So maybe the tape has taken away some of those easy lanes, those easy plays that Malkin and Riley Smith were able to capitalize on early in the season because there wasn't tape on them. But they need something to change the dynamic of that line again, and they need something to spark that line because the Penguins, they can't go for long stretches with these two still struggling because they need that second line more than ever. Fortunately, in recent weeks, the third and fourth line have started to score a little bit more. The blue line has started to score a little bit more that's helped supplant it and help keep the Penguins afloat. But the Penguins can't be puttering around at 500 all season long if they have hopes and aspirations of making the playoffs and making a run. So they need the second line to be better. And I think adding Brian Russ to that unit is certainly going to go a long way if they decide to do that. Yeah, it would go a long way. And this also um, puts a good emphasis on the work that Drew O'Connor's done on the first line, right? It's mm-hmm. um, He's looked really good in terms of... He, I think he's faster than he realizes every now and again. <laughs> you'll see him skate and... You know, with open lanes or with an open with some open ice, and next thing you know, the puck's twenty feet behind him because he's faster than he realizes. Um, he can't keep on his feet sometimes, but if he's able to hone in the speed, he's got great work ethic that um, could easily open up some chances for Crosby and Gensel again. <laughs> it's it's quickly a Dom Simone situation where it is. What is this name, Drew O'Connor, doing on the first line next to Sidney Crosby? Well, he's playing a specific style of hockey that doesn't necessarily equal first-line minutes, um, but he's looked real good doing it. I asked Sullivan about it after the it was the after the after first game, I think it was, that they were on uh, sharing a line together, which I think was the Ranger mm-hmm. game. Yep. Um, and he said just the way that he's hard on pucks, he makes things tough to play against, he utilizes so many different areas of the game that... Um, it's beneficial for 
the line as a whole. I'm kind of forgetting exactly what he said, but yeah, you can see it whenever they play that he is creating those chances, creating those opportunities, playing a lot like Brian Rust, um, mm-hmm. just without the finishing ability. But that's what Crosby and Gensler are there for. Well, that also come with time. I feel like as yeah. well. I mean, this when when out there together in the three games since Brian Russ has been out, they've scored two of the Penguins' five goals so far, and one of them was a beautiful pass by Drew O'Connor to set up Jake Gensel in the, in their most recent game against the the Toronto Maple Leafs. I, I think that seeing those three together, I think, is something that the Penguins could build on, and it goes to making sure your entire lineup is as good as it can be. And like you mentioned. Crosby and Gensel have done it with different players before. Dominic Simone, even Connor Sherry. You know, Connor Sherry, talented hockey player, but certainly not a first-line caliber hockey player on most NHL teams. But yet here, there he was through, I think, both Stanley Cup runs alongside Sidney Crosby. At least one of them. You know, at least one of them. Definitely the first one, because the first one, didn't he score the overtime winner in Game 2? Yes. On Crosby's line? Yeah, so he was he was there for both, because the second one was Sid and the kids, which I believe was Gensel, Crosby, and Sherry. So he was on Crosby's line for two Stanley Cup runs. I agree with you that that Drew O'Connor deserves a longer look on that line, not to mention, you know, that allows you to be a little bit stronger, not just with Brian Rust on the second line, but, you know, Jansen Harkins had probably his best game as a Penguin on Saturday, but let's not lie that having a guy in Alex Nylander on that third line over Jansen Harkins probably better serves the Pittsburgh Penguins when it comes to scoring throughout the lineup. I mean, Nylander, Eller, and Zahorna probably gives you a better chance of making that type of impact. Now, defensively, does it help as much? Not really, but also Jensen Harkins defensively hasn't been too solid either. But, you know, to get back to the Drew O'Connor thing, you look at the way the Penguins have been able to perform with him, they really haven't taken a step back when it comes to analytics since Brian Russ left. I mean, in three games played, 67% of the shot attempts for that line. They've outshot opponents 31-19 to at 5-on-5, five 66% of the expected goals, and 72% of the scoring chances. And it's not like the Penguins were playing, you know, cupcakes. They played the Rangers, one of the best teams in the league this season on Wednesday. That line played well. They played Buffalo, a young team that is right around the same caliber right now as the Pittsburgh Penguins. That line played well. They played Toronto, a team that let's talk about offense and who can control the puck and pace of play and puck possession. And they performed well in that one. So there hasn't been a major drop-off for that line. And I think that goes to show that Drew O'Connor can assimilate to a top six role. Now, can he, he drive the force for a line? Probably not. But he can certainly he can certainly supplement that line in a way that is going to be advantageous for Mike Sullivan and his crew. <clears throat> Absolutely. It's, it's, a, it would work out pretty well with those three staying together and it wouldn't be maybe not a long-term fix, but the way it could um, help adjust the rest of the lineup, it'd be pretty successful. I mean, you say that there's not a ton of scoring on that third line when it's, or a ton of defense on the third line when it's uh, Eller's, I mean, Eller's great. But Eller yeah. can stand up for most of it, and for a third line, I keep, I keep pounding the drum that the Penguins could use some legitimate scoring threats in the bottom six. You can't keep. Yeah. I mean, Nolachari's had a great couple of games. That man's defensive as all hell, and but he's looked <laughs> really good these last couple of games. Um, definitely had yeah. his best game as a Penguin against uh, his former team in the Toronto Maple Leafs. So there's the bonus there, um, but. You still need that legitimate scoring touch in the bottom six, at least I think. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe, oh, I agree. Who knows? Maybe Daniel Sprong might become available. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, to touch yeah, on the Patrick course. Kane signing in Detroit thing. Anyway, 
Uh, there's plenty that of... Man Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, that man is one of a few to just play for original six teams. Do you think he could eventually play for every original six team? Now he has Chicago, he has the Rangers, and he has the Red Wings. So he's, he's missing, what, Boston, Montreal, and Toronto. At least he could hit the American circuit on there. He ain't going to Toronto. <laughs> he ain't going. I could smit. He's nah. not going to Boston either. Yeah, that's fair. Buffalo kid, not going to Boston. Yeah, you're right. But anyway, it, now we get back to it. Uh, the, the Penguins could still use a scoring threat in the bottom six. And while we just said Alex Nylander doesn't have a ton of finishing ability, it's still a threat, right? It is still something that maybe yeah. that little change wakes something up. Maybe those opportunities against other depth players helps them out. Um, there's all kind of options. And leaving Drew O'Connor in that first line role, is it has that ripple effect to... Uh, implement different areas of this lineup and honestly as much as I, I tried drawing up something that would look like my quote-unquote ideal lineup for this team I mean mm -hmm. I would I, first of all I'd be getting a new third line center but that's because I like Lars Eller just as a fourth guy I don't know it's yeah I think um who knows who falls where but I'd say Nylander falling into the bottom six is a perfect situation too yeah, and I'll throw out a name, and this is the first time. I mean, he he had a slow start to the season in Wilkes-Barre, but he has heated up a little bit more as of late. In his first seven games, he had one goal, no assist. In his last eight, he has six points, three of them being goals. He's a right winger. He's somebody that I think would bring some offense to the bottom six. He's somebody that we saw have pretty good chemistry with Redeem Zahorna in preseason. For the first time this season, I'm banging the drum for Valtteri Pustin to get a shot on the third line for the Pittsburgh Penguins. We'll see how it goes. It's got a long line of... A big group of NHL-ready talent around him and in front of him, and uh, yeah. who knows where they pick from. Yeah, but here's the thing. I mean, historically, especially over the past two seasons, it seemed like Mike Sullivan's simplified thing saying, hey, whoever's the hot hand in Wilkes-Barre at the time of need, we're calling him up. Jonathan Gruden got two call-ups because of that. Now, this year it was only about four hours, but... He still got the call-up because he had been scoring in recent games. Valtteri Pustin is starting to heat up at the AHL level. Maybe you see him get that call. Maybe you see him get that opportunity on the Penguins' third line. But regardless, you know, the Penguins do need the third and the fourth line to continue scoring. They've been doing a pretty good job of that over the past week or so. I mean, Lars Eller had a nice goal on uh, on Friday against Buffalo. Like you mentioned, Nolachari has two goals in the last four games. He's starting to find the puck a little bit more. Matt Nieto is uh, interesting individual that we'll probably have to dive deeper on but you know the bottom six is is coming up with some supplemental scoring just in time too because like we mentioned the second line uh has gone on a drought here they the penguins need all four of their lines really to to get a at least a level higher other than maybe the first line because the first line's been good all season long but we're going to take a quick break when we return tristan jari is back on track is this what we should have expected and what have we seen over the past couple of weeks that has led to his numbers skyrocketing through the nhl statistical categories we'll be right back Welcome back to the Tip of the Iceberg podcast, brought to you as always by InsideThePenguins.com. Tristan Jari is somebody who is always going to be the focal point for the Pittsburgh Penguins, at least as much as somebody can be on a team that has Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Eric Carlson, and, and Kyle Dubas as a general manager. Let's not forget about that. But 
Tristan Jari and his performance is always going to be under a microscope, especially following the signing of a five-year, five-plus-million-dollar deal. And he started off the season pretty slow, and as you can imagine, people were not happy to see that. But quietly, Horwat, mm-hmm. he's been piecing together a stellar month of November, and it all dates back to when he called himself out following the loss to the Anaheim Ducks on home ice where he gave up a goal with about 11 seconds to go against Mason McTavish, and they lost 4-3 to in regulation. Since then, Tristan Jari, and I put this on Twitter as well, or X or whatever you need to call it, 5-3 and with a 934 save percentage, a two-flat goals against average. You want to talk about giving your team a chance to win, scoring only two goals or allowing only two goals. It's a perfect way to do that on a team that has Crosby, Malkin, all those players. And now sits seventh in the National Hockey League in goals saved above expected. This is nothing new, though. Like, November and December are the months of luxury when it comes to Tristan Jari. Historically, his best months by far. Not even close, because every other month he's... 909 save percentage, 908 save percentage, 908, 907, 906. In November, 925 save percentage, five career shutouts. In December, 928 save percentage, four career shutouts in that month. No other month does he have more than two shutouts. So that goes into it as well. But this guy is lethal in the months of November and December. What have you seen from Jari in recent weeks that you believe has led to this turnaround other than the mystical magic of the calendar? (laughs) Uh, it's goaltending being voodoo as always. I'd say the way he was able to call himself out and then back it up because he called himself out. You have to remember, he also did that at a crucial time of Alex Nadelkovich was not around to be the guy to maybe step in for a game or two more than normal because of, um, play of Mike Sullivan playing the hot handed net. He didn't have that luxury. Now Magnus Helberg played great in those, uh, in his couple of appearances, uh, you know, stepping up for an overtime win in LA and stepping in to complete the shutout against uh, against Anaheim in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, since then it was all rolling on Jari. It's it was up to him to really step up, and he played what one, two, three, four games in a row before uh, piling on that before Dudelkovich returned for that Vegas game. Some of those were losses, yeah. But you know, Mike Sullivan said that. Jari is the reason why they kept in a lot of those games, at least, why they were yeah. still there. Um, there's another question I asked, especially after the Toronto game, I asked Sullivan that about the about Jari's play in that one specifically and how good it was for him to get a tight win rather than one of those shutout, blowouts um, mm-hmm. sort of situations. And Because he made those 12 saves in the third period against one of the, I don't want to say one of the hottest offenses in the league, but against against snipers and scorers like Marner, Matthews, Tavares, he shut him down. And, you know, uh, Sullivan said that it was the kind of game that big for him, but also big for the players in front of him, that their goal is making those saves. He's able to build the ground that he needs to rise on. And um, it's slowly adding that momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, the Buffalo game wasn't him, but it was... He, what he, that new that uh, Rangers game. I keep going back to it because again, that's a game that if one goal goes in for the Penguins, it's a different outcome probably. Jari was yep. standing on his head the entire time, and then Sullivan referenced the Carolina game. I don't yep. remember much of it. Uh, I don't. It happens. Yeah, I don't remember Jari keeping up in it just because it was kind of a, uh, 
more noticeable loss, but um, I was, whenever he first said Carolina, I was like, did you mean New York? And then I kind of remembered, no, he, he meant Carolina, as weird as that yep. might sound. So even in the losses, because he was riding a f- three or four game losing streak going into that Toronto game, didn't seem like it though. Those numbers, you know, the outside of the record have been on the rise. Those analytical numbers have been on the rise. He's a top seven, top 10 goalie. And I think it's number seven. That's why I said that goalie in the league in terms of those analytical numbers. So he's been pushing for a much more respectable, uh, much more respectable run. It's a matter of finding the wins now though. And that's what the team in front of him needs to help him with. Yeah. Yeah. It would certainly help if they scored a little bit more because, you know, you look at what he's been able to do. And, and the thing that's interesting to me about this is we've seen him in the past, you know, November's and December's, we talked about it earlier in the segment, we've seen him get dominant in those months. But the problem is usually in those months, he's dominant and he's not allowing anything. Mm-hmm. Like he, The goals have to be grade A goals, fantastic opportunities with solid snipers beating them in this stretch. He's not been rock solid. He's given up his fair share of weak goals. I mean, you can go back as, as as early as the Toronto game. Both of those goals in the first period were poor rebound control. You know, he gave up the open net. It was pass off the pads. The defense, yes, you would like to see if they could get a stick lift or, or win a puck battle in front. But when both goals in that quick of succession happen the same way, it's it's on the goaltender as well to make sure that you don't give up that juicy rebound right in front of the goal or that you kick it or deflect it out of danger. And he wasn't able to do that. He's given up some weak goals throughout this, this past couple of weeks, this run in November. But the thing that I've noticed from him is his ability to not let that get to him, his ability to not let that ruin the remainder of the night, his ability to bounce back and get back into that shutdown type of mindset. Like you mentioned on Saturday, He didn't give anything up after those two quick goals. Nothing. You mentioned on uh, Wednesday, Thanksgiving Eve, that first goal, yes, it was a breakaway, but still you might have wanted to have that one back against Alexi Lafreniere. I don't know how to say that name. People always cook me for it. But however you say his name, maybe you wanted to have that back. But again, shut down the rest of the day. Unfortunately, the Pittsburgh Penguins got shut down by, you know, the corpse of Jonathan Quick. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's the thing that I, I'm recognizing the most, and that's the biggest change to me is the fact that, you know, historically, if he has a bad game, he has a bad game. It's a bad game, and there's no redeeming qualities. This season, it seems like, I don't know if it, it's Andy Kyoto and the work he's doing, because Alex Nedeljkovich has mentioned that as well in one of his postgame press conferences, that he works with Cheeto on making sure that, you know, next goal mentality, keeping the next one out, mm-hmm. keeping the next shot out. I don't know if that's that might also, you know, be working for Tristan Jari, who, as we've seen this season, is getting better at bouncing back after giving up goals and not letting things snowball. And I think that's something that could help make his numbers a little bit more sustainable once the calendar flips to 2024. Yeah, he he's been able to really close out the games because you mentioned the Toronto game. He gave up those first two goals and the Penguins scored in between there with three goals coming in the matter of however many minutes it was. It was like just a handful of minutes into the game. Yeah. You're thinking either this is going to be a long night or this is going to be firehouse hockey. It turned out to be neither of those things after that second goal, after that second Toronto goal. It turned out to be um, pretty shut down. Again, the fourth line is the one that contributed the game tying goal. And then um, the defense is, and the fourth line is what, and the fourth line is what contributed the game winner. 
Uh, it ended up, you know, being that, and then nothing in the third period. It was Tristan Jari stepping up for the New York game. The goal came, that one goal came off of a turnover, if I'm not mistaken. So it did. You don't, Ryan Graves. Yeah, so you, know, you, you don't create that. The usual suspect. Darn it, I want him to be good so bad. Um, yeah. You don't create that turnover, maybe that goal doesn't happen. Or like I said, maybe if you just pot one power play goal, completely different outcome on five chances. Or that mm-hmm. opportunity that Jake Gansel and Cindy Crosby had on the two-on-one that was really where I've realized Jonathan Quick turned back the clock 11 years. Oh, by the way, he's undefeated on the year two. Um, or at least he was. I don't know if he still is. Uh, it's one of those goals bounces in. One of those goals, maybe you get a good snipe on Jonathan Quick. You just beat him. An ugly goal, a pretty one, whatever it may be. Different outcome, probably, because it was that close and Tristan Jari was shutting it down. I was going to say, if Alex Nylander was two inches back further on that zone entry, it's at least oh, one-to-one. Yeah, that's right. That's right, With, without the glove. So. Because that was another question that came up, too, is this a complete sidebar of the yeah. of hit generally quick not having his glove. Um, I believe, I don't know the rules, haven't looked into it, believe the team needs to gain possession. Because I noticed it yeah. literally the game before... Um, against Vegas, Nadelkovich's helmet strap. His helmet wasn't off, which is what they do, blow dead immediately. But his strap was loose. I could yeah. see it from the press box, and I could see him calling for, like, calling for the ref. And the like, Penguins was, needed to get possession, and then the Penguins gained possession, and the bl- whistle was blown dead. Whereas in New York, glove comes off and is in the corner, and there's quick yelling for, um, yelling that his glove yeah. is off, but nothing happens. They end up scoring. I believe it's. I believe it's just the helmet that's an immediate yeah. blowing the whistle. I think they, they consider the glove similar to, like, if a goaltender loses his stick. It's like, well, okay, then don't try to make the save with your stick or don't try to make the save with your glove because you don't have one. Yeah. Um, but he almost made the save with his his bare hand. It was close. It was, um, yeah. But regardless, you know, to, to go on another quick sidebar before we get back to Jari, mm-hmm. you mentioned Ryan Graves and you wanted him to be good so bad for the Pittsburgh Penguins. It was an interesting conversation on the radio because I, I didn't get to watch – the Rangers game as it happened. I was driving back home um, to Pennsylvania. So I was listening to the game and in the intermission, Brian Metzer, friend of the show was talking to Josh Yoey of the athletic. And they were talking a little bit about Ryan Graves and how he has struggled to this point in the season. He doesn't seem comfortable yet with the Pittsburgh Penguins. And I, I think it was Yoey, uh, if not, it was Metzer, but one of them mentioned that, you know, historically it takes defensemen a lot longer to acclimate themselves to new systems and to new teams. He said the same thing happened with Paul Martin. Paul Martin was horrible in his first year for the Pittsburgh Penguins. What did Paul Martin do after that? He went on to become a very good defensive force for the Pittsburgh Penguins. So, you know, it might be, you know, the entire season that Ryan Graves is struggling, but, you know, it doesn't mean that his entire contract is going to be that way. Again, that's blind hope. Hope that Mm -hmm. it can happen. Hope that history can repeat itself with that. They mentioned another name as well. And it's escaping me at the moment, and I, I feel bad for forgetting. But, you know, it, historically, um, you know, with the, at least the Paul Martin case, it is how it turned out. So, you know, you hope history repeats itself there. Um, it's an interesting thing to think about because I thought, you know, I think he's been better. Uh, but yeah. I do think that he needs to take many more strides before you start to actually realize um, him as that type of defenseman for the Pittsburgh Penguins. And I'm, and I can see that. I can totally see how oh, – he hasn't been good yet, but he definitely will be. I think he's been fine so far for what it's worth. He's done proper things. Um, his goal was, like I, I think we said it on the podcast, he <clears throat> misses that goal or it, that puck doesn't bounce to him and it rolls the other way. Then we you know, 
flame him for it. But he was in the right yeah. spot at the right time. I also <clears throat> did ask uh, Ryan Graves yesterday after practice about where they stood on, um, like, where the whole team stood at the quarter mark. And he said, like, he didn't want there to, like, no one wanted there to be as much of a learning curve as there was with all the new faces. But they had no choice. Um, yeah. And he mentioned that there's there are certain pieces that some people are still learning. Um, I'd have to listen back to see if he mentioned himself and all that, but I'm, it sounds like from what you know, Yoey yeah. Metz are saying that he is still part of that learning curve that is still taking place. The issue with Ryan Graves taking on a learning curve this long, he's playing on the first line. That's where it becomes yeah. But so the, was Paul Martin. Yeah. <clears throat> In like 2013, 2012. Yeah, but those teams didn't have super high expectations. I mean, they did, I don't know, 20, but... 2012, 2013, they went to the East Finals, and then yeah, we know what happened. Um, but, like, <laughs> it's a little different because, also, Ryan Graves is coming in and supposed to be pretty much Latang's last partner, right? Yeah. Something like that, something along those lines. Um, his last top partner, at least. So maybe there's a little something there that the expectations are extremely high for Ryan Graves, and he just hasn't met them yet. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah. It, it, it doesn't help that he's coming into this situation and on the first line and their that learning curve is taking longer than normal. Whereas do we remember Cody Cece coming in and being good right away? Cause he was playing on the third line. Yeah. So there's that piece of it too. But anyway, where were we? Uh, we were talking about Tristan Jari, but you know, at the end of the day, I think that was towards the end of the, co- the conversation. I mean, that's, he, he's been much better yeah. uh, to this point of the month. And the big test is going to be, you know, happy new year, Tristan, are you going to be all right? Like that's, that's going to be the question is like, because you look at his, his numbers and you go to hockeyreference.com, look at career splits, look at how much of a dip it takes from November, December, even October, he usually has a pretty good month, but October, November, December, January hits and it just drops about everything drops about two or three massively notches, whatever it is, you know, like drops down to like 908, 906 for the save percentage, jumps up to like 28, 29 for the goals against average instead of the like 21 to 23 that he has in, in November and December. So the real test is going to be, you know, once that new year turns around, how is he able to perform? Um, I think the most interesting s- split that he has is he's 3-0 and in the month of May. Is it May, either May or April? He's three and zero, but he has like an eight ninety save percentage or something like that. I it, it's uh, I'd have to go back and look at it, but it's uh, it's a crazy split because you're like how 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 did the Penguins win those games? Because clearly it wasn't because of him. But well, May would uh, I digress on that. Point. May would have maybe been playoffs. Yeah, but it it was all regular season. Ooh, um, so ugly. maybe it's April. Maybe he's three and zero in April with like an eight ninety save percentage or something like that. I'd have to go back and look at it. I, I did my research a little too early this morning, but. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, I talked about it yesterday on Iceberg to Go. We're going to talk about it a little bit more today on Tip of the Iceberg. The Penguins power play is, is the biggest question mark surrounding this team 20 games into the season, and we have to keep talking about it because they keep trying to make changes, and however slight they may be, uh, they don't actually create results on the ice, or at least haven't to this point. We'll talk about that after the break. Welcome back to the Tip of the Iceberg podcast, brought to you as always by InsideThePenguins.com, the Penguins power play. I gave you a couple of ideas yesterday of how I would change the power play if I was in Mike Sullivan's shoes or 
Todd Reardon shoes or Sidney Crosby shoes or Kyle Dubas, whoever's calling the shots on the Penguins' top power play, uh, I, I said, you know, Chris Letang, which you echoed that sentiment in an earlier article that neither of us had talked about up to this point. Um, so we both believe that maybe Chris Letang on that unit would be advantageous. I think that maybe give Nolachari a shot to be that net front guy because they need somebody in the net front that knows how to play there. Sorry to Jake Gensel. I know he's been doing it for three years, but it's just not cutting it at this point. And uh, the other thing I mentioned was just make sure that you get Sidney Crosby more involved, please. Like sometimes it seems like he's completely out of the play on the power play and he's the best player on the team. I get there's a lot of Hall of Famers on the team, but he is the best player on the team and it's by a pretty wide margin. So you got to get him more involved. Him and Carlson should be one and two for, for who touches the puck the most in the offensive zone. And sorry to Evgeny Malkin, but with the current cold streak he's on, uh, it just seems like it's compounding worse and worse on the, on the man advantage. But with Russ back in the fold, it seemed yesterday, whenever that may be, it appears he's going to be joining the top power play. I just don't see that helping much. Horwat, uh, what what are your thoughts on the the Penguins' top man advantage unit? Yeah, I don't know how much it does really help because every after every game, Jesse Marshall keeps going on about this too. It's not about the players on the ice. These players can perform and play very good, some pretty good offense. It's about the structure and how um, the play is being set up and designed. That's kind of is what's killing them because they've been doing it for checks notes a decade. 10 years at some point like you mentioned that the um cold streak with uh malkin and smith might be because people finally got the game tape people have had the game tape on the penguins power play for nine years now (laughs) i I think they've got plenty of oh well here's what they're doing here's how we stop it something along those lines needs to change but for what it's worth we've seen even in the past 10 years this power play do some wonderful things um does Brian Rust add that much? Doubt it, really. It's as good as he is. We know Brian Rust is great, um, but he'll have to bring something that maybe hasn't been brought yet. It's hard to really say what exactly is going to fix this uh, fix this lineup. I think I'm. I'll I'll hold on to that Carlson and Latang sharing a blue line bit. Um, mm-hmm. You tried it before. I mean. At this point, what do you have to lose? Try it again. I mean, unless you're genuinely worried about attacking uh, penalty kills, which I could get against the Maple Leafs. I understand that, considering they throw throw Marner and Matthews over the boards all the time on penalty kills. So, yeah, okay, fine. Don't throw throw those two out because they're not going to play great defense. Crystal Tang, on the other hand, is killing a ton of penalties this year so that you have that defense there. Um, But I'd say at some point just... Try it. Just see what happens. Give it a shot in practice and fling it against the wall. See if it sticks. Um, mm-hmm. Because Kevin Bieksa on Hockey Night Canada kind of gave a good reasoning why that could work. Uh, it's in the yeah. story that I wrote. It has to do with the handedness. You're opening up lanes to shoot with one-timers. You're you're not having to catch the pass and then kind of settle it to your forehand. You're not. You know that split second there is kind of what gives an, a defense a chance to get in the way. You're just opening up one-timers with the handedness of, especially if everything, like you said, is flowing through Crosby on that flank. You Mm -hmm. find a right-handed shot on the blue line. He can fire away if he wants to, or if he wants to pass it, you have another right-handed shot on the other end of the blue line that he can shoot it. Uh, Malkin Mm -hmm. kind of becomes irrelevant in this situation, but so be it. Um, And then also, whoever you want in the net front, Nolachari's a hell hell of a fun idea. Yeah, if we're just drawing this up on the fly right now, 
based on what you said, uh, it sparked something. Like yesterday, I, I said Nolachari, and I was kind of if ands or buts on on the other four. I just kind of wanted to see Nolachari. That was the point I was trying to yeah. get across. But you know, with you saying that. Latang on the left side because he's a right shot. You got that one timer. Carlson is the quarterback. I like that a lot. Jake Gensel on the on the right flank. He's a lefty that opens up a one timer. He's a forty goal scorer yeah. twice in this league. He's a perennial thirty goal scorer in this league. Get him more shooting opportunities, which is something else I mentioned yesterday. No Lachari in the net front because he is a dog and he can just he can deal with that. Yeah. And literally the quote he had after the Toronto game was. Well, the first time I wasn't able, you know, I was knocked out of the net front. So on that game winning goal, I wanted to make sure I took his eyes. That is something that nobody else on this team seems to understand. Yeah. Take the goalie's eyes away. Get Nolichari in the net front. That way you have the three up top, two one-timer opportunities. Carlson at the point because he's he's a, he's a quarterback on the power play. Achari taking away the eyes. And Crosby is just a floating assassin. Whether that's in the bumper position, whether you want him to go down low and try to make a move, let him be a floating assassin in that middle area, uh, you know, in the rail of the ice, which is between the dots. Let him be a, like an assassin there, whether that's high tips, which he's really good at, or whether that's getting down low and being two net front guys, him and Achari becoming tough to, you know, get out of there because Achari's tough to move. Crosby is one of the strongest players when it comes to his lower body in the NHL. Like, I feel like that would be at the very least a different look, right? Something you haven't put on tape this yeah. season and really haven't put on tape ever because Achari and Carlson are two no new variables, but to continue just being like, well, everything else is fine, but you know, that left flank, that left flank needs something different. I get it. You know, Jared McCann's not walking through those, those doors. Phil Kessel circa 2018 is not walking through those doors. You're not going to get a left flank at the, at the ability of those guys. Cause they were great when they were here and doing that. But like last year you did the same thing. It was, well, now rust is on the rust is on the left flank. Okay. Well now it's still not working. Okay. Well, Raquel, Raquel is on the left flank. You know, we're, we're going to change things up. They finished 14th on the power play last year doing that, you know, not bad, but middle of the road, certainly something you, you want to see better because you have all this talent. Well, this year they're 26th and they're still saying, you know what? Riley Smith, Smith on the left flank. That's going to change things. And it's like, come on, guys. Like, how often do we have to do the same thing and realize something else needs to change? And I think one of them, and I've mentioned it a couple times, nothing against Evgeny Malkin. Evgeny Malkin might need to be the change when it comes to personnel-wise. But as you mentioned, and Jesse Marshall mentions copious amounts of times on, on X, <clears throat> the system might also need to change, guys. Let's stop banging our head against the wall and hoping something changes when we don't change anything around it. Yeah, it was hard to tell exactly what they could have been working on in practice, but it was definitely a ton of everything on the power play. Um, not so yeah. much personnel swaps or changes. Another thing, too, about the power play that this has always been a thing, that second unit doesn't mean anything. You're not no. giving Chris Letang... Like he's, he's manning the second unit. Yeah, he's not getting any power play time. They, they're out there for 45 You're seconds. 20 seconds. Yeah, 20 seconds, 45 seconds. Like, they're not getting any yeah. any time. Because one thing that that first power play is can can be pretty good at doing, I mean, they're not shooting the puck, but they're wasting so much time passing it. Wasting <laughs> yeah. all of that time. Um, And then once they try and make those hard passes clear across the ice, they get tipped down, they're down the other way, and they don't change right away. That second unit is getting no time. They're not getting time to set up. Also, you're throwing Jeff Carter out there. By goodness, it's any wonder. Like it, the the structure of it needs to change more than the players do, because again, the Penguins have four Hall of Famers 
that I can think of off the top of my head <laughs> right now mm-hmm. on the team, just on the team, not necessarily on the top power play, but on the team that can all score. Yeah, and Drew O'Connor, it's... Brian Russ, Jake Ensel. <laughs> <laughs> Carter Kell did Sorry, lead the continue. team in uh, power play goals power last play year. Power play goals last year? Yep. <laughs> but, no, it, it, the team has four Hall of Famers that can do the thing. Yeah. Where is it? It's yeah. the structure, maybe. So, I again, like, we're not... We just drew up a nice little power play with the Chari sitting in the net front, maybe Crosby sitting in the net front, maybe Carlson yeah. and Latang sharing a blue line. At this point, again, I get you have important games coming up, and you do want to win those games, but yeah. the power play is costing you games. Yeah. It's what happened that- in New York, probably what happened in Buffalo. <sighs> and, again, it's, it is a weird time to start experimenting with things you don't want to experiment a quarter of the way into the season but you don't really have much of a choice right now and here's the thing what's gonna what's gonna be different if you experiment and it does and it's not working when you're experimenting what's the difference you've scored seven power play goals in 20 games yeah two of them were in the second game of the season yeah (laughs) what like what are we doing so you've scored five power play goals in the last eight game or 18 games so like at this point how long can you stay the course when it's been bad for a quarter of the season? Because it feels like there is an aura of we're going to stay the course and eventually it's going to work. If you keep doing that, then, you know, set up your tee times now because you're going to be done early April before the playoffs even begin again. Yeah, because Sullivan does say there is a fine line between overcoaching and letting things work out. There is, but it should not be at this, a quarter of the way through the yeah, season. At this point now, I think it is time to start overcoaching a little bit. It's yeah. maybe not overcoaching, but stepping in and saying, here are the changes that need to be made. Here's some structural changes. It, it, the time for it to work out has passed. Yeah. It's not overcoaching. You know what it's doing? It's coaching. Doing your damn job. Yeah, it's coaching. It's it's doing your job Yeah. at this point. So, you know, I think we're on the same wavelength there with, uh, with Mike Sullivan and the Penguins power play. We'll see what changes uh, come about tonight. Uh, if they get a power play opportunity, they're also not great at drawing those. Yeah. Um, like pe- third people have mentioned that. You know, people have mentioned that a lot. And I'm like, you know, that's nobody's fault but the Penguins, right? Like That points directly to the way they play at five on five, which is not aggressive enough Yeah. in the offensive zone. That's how you draw penalties. Drive to the net. You know what they don't do? They don't drive to the net. So uh, I'd love to see a breakdown about who has drawn the most penalties because I'm sure Crosby's up there just because people don't know how to handle him in the offensive zone. But I'm sure it's probably the third line or the fourth line that's drawn a lot of penalties because they play that aggressive style more often than than the other two lines personally you're gonna make me really think about who it is now aren't you uh i don't know where to even find that stat so you know if, if, if you know where to find that and who's drawn the most penalties please leave it in the comment section because i would love to be able to monitor that um but at the end of the day uh the penguins take on the 10 10 and 0 nashville predators ironic because the penguins are also 10 10 and 0 going into this game as you mentioned before the show before the uh, we started taping here uh the battle of mid quite quite literally is what you said so uh we'll, we'll see what that does later tonight one of the five buildings the Pittsburgh Penguins have won the Stanley Cup in and clinched the Stanley Cup in, so we'll see if they get any good voodoo from that. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Tip of the Iceberg podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we will see you next time. 